Welcome to the Richmond Sherm Voices podcast. The Richmond Sherm Voices podcast will take a deep dive into hot HR topics by interviewing local executives and thought leaders who will share their journey, experience, insight, and lessons learned along the way. Subscribe and join us as we navigate human capital issues shaping today and tomorrow's ways of work here in the Commonwealth. Brought to you by Greater Richmond Society of Human Resource Management, the number one resource for all things HR. Hosted by Tiffany Fortune and Gray Martin. We have the pleasure of welcoming Karen Michael. Karen Michael is the president of the Richmond-based Karen Michael PLC, a work law and training and investigation firm founded in Richmond in 2008. As a former human resource executive and employment attorney with over 27 years of experience, Karen is also a sought-after speaker and even writes a weekly labor law column for the Richmond Times, really a local celebrity in HR circles. Karen, welcome to the show. It's quite an honor. Thank you so much to be invited. And you know, I absolutely love Richmond Sherm. My heart is in Richmond Sherm, which I've worked with for many years. So thank you for having me. We are so grateful. I know that Richmond Sherm taps you a lot because as Tiffany said, you are are quite the local celebrity here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to get us us started, uh, here we are. 2020, wrapping it up, thankfully. (laughs) Um, But 2020 had some significant changes in Virginia employment law. For individuals with respect to non-discrimination related to transgender and sexual orientation. And those were very important rights that we needed to add. But it really expanded the law tremendously. And I don't know that employers really know what they're what's about to happen to them with respect to that law. There was also some laws relating to non-competes, prohibiting non-competition agreements with low wage workers. There were some wage and hour law changes. There were some independent contractor changes, um, making employees basically misclassification laws whistleblowers, and of course, the new regulations relating to the coronavirus and Bosch, Virginia Occupational Safety, Dolly, all those new regulations went into place. So there's a plethora of new things that have happened in in Virginia in particular, let alone in the federal law. And you said that that um, some employment or HR practitioners may not know fully what's what's going to happen. So what happened to them with some of these laws? Can, can you go into that in a little more, more detail? Well, for example, let's talk about the Virginia Values Act. So what really has happened with that law is it has turned Virginia law into essentially like an EEOC where you file a complaint and Virginia Attorney General's office is going to review it and then issue a right to sue. And that person then has a right to sue in state court. And while that seems kind of to parallel the federal law, the process in state court is very different than federal court. And so typically in federal court, when these cases come forward, regardless of whether you get a cause or no cause finding, you still have a right to file in federal court for these violations of like Title VII and the ADA and the ADEA. But typically employers prevail or not at the summary judgment stage. And so everyone takes depositions and writes affidavits. And then we present that in front of a federal judge. And that judge rules as a matter of law, this doesn't meet the standard. And frankly, it's very hard to prove a discrimination or harassment case. There is a lot that goes into that. I do think with the new administration, there's going to be some changes to potentially those laws so that it is not as difficult to prove. But at this time, it's very hard to win a case for hostile working environment discrimination. 
Fast forward to state court in Virginia, you you can't win really summary judgment in Virginia. That's not a process that's available. You maybe can win on the motion to dismiss stage right after it's filed, but it's very hard to win that. So the reality is, unlike in federal court where you virtually have no jury trials in state court, these are going to be decided on a jury trial. And you show me an employer that wants to risk a jury trial. And so I don't know if it's going to result in more mediation, more settlements, but it is going to change the landscape of how we view things. I mean, in the past, the the employee, after the employee's fired, so I'm going to sue you. And you thought, okay, bring it because you're going to go to the EOC. We're going to win. You, if you file in federal court, we're going to win. I mean, this is, we're never going to get to a jury because that's how the process works. In state court, they're going to get to a jury probably, whether whether it's a completely frivolous case or not. And so that is going to change the landscape, I think, pretty significantly once this gets rolling. Now, I haven't had a case yet. That's been filed in Virginia. So I really don't know for sure how all that process is going to go, but it could make a big difference to employers in, in Virginia and really change that landscape. Mm. What, what are some of the things that you think employers should be doing or thinking about proactively to seeing some of these uh, filings hit the court? The thing that I am always shocked about is how little employers do t- to prevent And they might have training once every three years, if that frequently, if they do, it's just, quote, sexual harassment training. Employers call me up and say, Karen, can you come do sexual harassment training? I'm like, no, I'm going to do civility training. And I'm going to cover from bullying to racial to disability across the board, because civility in total is what we need. And employers, I think, have really, even with Me Too, even with all the racial injustice that we talk about, employers have turned, I think, a blind eye in reality, to what is going on in the workplace, whether it's bullying, whether it's discrimination, whether it's hostile working environment, whatever that is. And employers have got to do a better job of explaining what is expected and then holding people accountable, doing a real investigation and then not retaliating against people who come forward. And sometimes I do these trainings and I am so specific in my trainings. I'm like, this is exactly what you can and cannot do in the workplace. And if you do these five, six things in the workplace, you can't work here anymore. So these are the things. And sometimes afterwards, you know, the people, the participants will say, we can't do anything anymore. I'm like, no, you can't use the N word. You can't talk about sex at work. You can't disparage somebody's medical condition. You can't verbally abuse your coworker. You got to be a good person. Shock. Exactly. Like be not, be kind and respectful to your coworker. And so I think that the, the, what employers need to do better is not just having words on a page. That's a policy or at least start there, but that's not enough. You need to have training. That's not enough. You need to reinforce it on a regular basis. Your job is not done when you have a policy and you have a training that your job is not done. It needs to be part of your culture. And I hope that the fear now of this potential in Virginia will at least now cause employers to see a better business case to provide this with their employers and with their employees and hopefully make some positive change because we aren't there. I see it every day in the workplace and bad behavior and we can all do a lot better and civility is where it starts. I have a question for you. I know that uh, you just stated that with the new administration, you feel like there's going to be some changes. Um, what impact are you thinking is coming or is there is there anything that 
that's come across your desk that you're like, okay, I think this is something that we've got to kind of keep our minds on or eyes open for with the, with the changes that might happen with our president elect. It's very hard to tell. And here's why, because for years I've, I wrote about the employment non-discrimination act, which was an act that was designed to guarantee those with gender identity and sexual orientation preferences, guarantee them the right to non-discrimination and harassment in the workplace. And that was in front of Congress for about 12 to 15 years, whether it was an all Democratic, all three, all three Republican, nothing got done. It was a bunch of talk and no action. And it wasn't until the Supreme Court, frankly, read into the law. The law was not written to protect those rights, the Title VII law. It just wasn't. But Gorsuch said, I've had enough. I'm just going to read it into the law because it's got to get done. And you know what? That If that's what had to happen, it had to happen. I frankly thought his decision read into the law, but I'm glad it did because I, we couldn't count on Congress to get it done. I've written about it multiple times, how frustrating it has been to see a lack of progress in that area. So I hear a lot of talk. I don't see a lot of action. And I, I've heard that there might be some discussion about changing the cause of action for a hostile working environment because it frankly is very, very difficult to meet the high legal standard for a hostile working environment for an employee to prevail. It's a very high bar. I've read that there was some talk that that might get changed. I don't think it's a Democrat issue or a Republican issue. It's a courage to take a stand. And, and, you know, does that need to change? I don't know that either. I mean, I, I just wish employers would do a better job of enforcing policies. And I wish employees would do a better job of being civil in the workplace. So I, you know, does it need to change? I can't, I'm not going to advocate one way or the other, but I have very little confidence that in the workplace, that there's a lot of motivation on the part of Congress to get anything done because I've seen a lack of progress for years on things that I think mattered. That, that employment non-discrimination law, that law mattered and it was called the ENDA and it, nothing got done for years, even though it was all Republican, all Democrat. So I think that we need to be better at compelling our people that represent us to let them know what's important to us because that showed me that nothing was going to get done. How would you go about doing that? Um, Compelling um, those who represent us to to see some of these changes? Well, do changes need to be made? I think that's the first question. I really do think that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission that enforces employment discrimination and harassment, they actually do a very good job. And I think that they do a good job of reviewing the cases, bringing suit where it needs to be brought. There are just a couple things that need to be tweaked, and I'll give you an example. So Virginia passed what was banning what's called hairstyles discrimination. And it was part of the new Virginia Values Act, and it was based on race. And the theory was this. It basically said that it, it, that it, it said it prohibited discrimination on the basis of race. And the basis of race was defined to include because of or on the basis of traits historically associated with race, including hair texture, hair type, and protective hairstyles such as braids, locks, and twists. So Virginia is one of, I think, four states that passed that particular provision to define race discrimination in that way. Fast forward to the federal law of Title VII. Federal courts have determined that hairstyles discrimination is not race discrimination. So Title VII, technically under the current reading by federal courts who have interpreted that, have said that's not race discrimination. That doesn't count. It doesn't fall on the technical reading of the law. 
So the question is, do those things need to be changed to include things like that? Because if you take a technical reading, like I think Gorsuch probably should have done, but didn't with this, with this gender identity, I'm glad that that's now included in the law. But if you really took a technical reading, you might conclude otherwise. So the question is, does something need to change? And if so, what is that? I'm not in favor of a whole, you know, bunch of litigation against employers. I think many of them do an extremely good job of enforcing their policies and and having a respectful workplace. The 99% of the time, it's good. It's that 1% we need to fix. And I do think the EEOC does a good job. So the question is, what does need to change? I don't want a knee-jerk reaction that everything needs to be blown up. I think there's a lot of good out there already. Are there a couple things that need to be tweaked? The biggest thing I would have said was gender identity and transgender. That's now been fixed. I think there are a couple things that we can fix with respect to race. And, you know, there's a big question on whether there should be bullying laws out there. I'm not in favor of more litigation and legislation, frankly. I think that I, I, I do work with businesses and I think businesses need to be able to operate. I do think that there's a lot of bullying and I'm disappointed sometimes that employers take the position that because it's not illegal that they're going to allow it to continue. And I find that very frustrating. So, you know, does do things need to change? And if so, what and how do we make that happen? You know, that's the spectrum. And, and I think that that's the hard decision is balancing what what we have that's working and what needs to be fixed. So I, I I just am curious. I'm sorry. I was just thinking while you were going through that about all of this focus on DE and I, well needed focus in 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 my mind. But when you're talking about what's happening with discrimination, and for me the the, the hairstyle one is really close to my heart because I normally do have my hair in locks and have changed that now that I'm on the other side of the table and working with new clients and new employees, I've changed that look. That's interesting. It's a very nice protective hairstyle for me. I've changed the look to be um, more presentable in the workforce um, because that's what the world has shown me. But when I'm looking at, you know, all of this push on DE&I and we're talking about these new laws that have been passed, the Virginia Values Act, how do you think is the best way for an HR practitioner? How do we put all this together into policy? Because there's all of this happening around us, but now we're sitting into going into 2021 when this is normally a time in which we are looking at revamping and updating our policies. Are there, I know this is kind of like kind of a kind of off the wall maybe question, but is there anything that you can recommend or any best practices or how do we just address all of this in a policy update? Well, this is where I might get controversial. Because there is a bit of a controversy in the world of DEI as it relates to how we get the message across. And there's a theory out there called critical race theory, where you train people on the concept of white privilege. And it's been taken to the point of white supremacy and you're born white people are demons and all this other stuff and this training and that prompted Trump, President Trump's executive order that I'm sure will be rescinded once President Biden gets in office. And so it's prompted this discussion. And I do think that there are people that do DEI that think that's a good way to teach and that's the way to move forward. I am somebody that's been doing training in the workplace for 27 years. And I think our job is to be more inclusive and not divisive. 
And I personally think that training in that way creates a huge divide between races that we are not, we, we don't need right now. We need, I think, to be more inclusive. And I don't want anyone in that room. And I know, you know, a lot of people disagree. They say DEI is all about making people feel uncomfortable and they need to see themselves and all that. And I understand that. My goal is civility and to understand unconscious bias. And I do a lot of teaching about unconscious bias and helping people to see for themselves. I don't tell them they need to figure it out themselves, their own experiences that have caused them to see where they are and what they're experiencing. And, you know, understanding unconscious bias. I mean, I'll give an example. I was doing a training recently and we talk about unconscious bias and an executive openly admitted. She said, you know what? I've got a female employee. And I have intentionally withheld a promotion from her because I assumed she wouldn't want to travel because she has two kids. And I just assumed she wouldn't want to travel. And you're helping me to see these assumptions that we make about other people. And I use fun examples like the modern family one when Cam and his husband are on the airplane and one of them hopes that the pilot isn't really a woman. And he says, oh, you're trying to test my bias about, you know, that I'm perfectly okay with a woman pilot. And the pilot comes on and it's a man. And he's like, oh, thank God. Because the reality is we have expressed, we're expressly unbiased, but we're internally biased and helping people to see that. So I hope that organizations will now and going forward really talk about unconscious bias because it is so real. We all have it. I call it our mental glitch that we have it and it's awful. And I wish it would could take it out of my brain, but it's in there. I mean, I did it the other day with my, my father-in-law in the ICU. And I said to my husband, what did something about the doctor? And I said, what did he say? And my husband said, the doctor's a woman. I was like, oh, you're right. I mean, but that, and, and my sister's an OBGYN. So of all people, obviously I know doctors are women, but you just, you have it. It's in there. And I prefer getting people to their own conclusions instead of shoving in their face and making them feel like they're horrible people. That's just my opinion. I know that there are a lot of DEI people that disagree and it just, you know, we, we have to do what's right for each workplace. But for me personally, I want us to get to a point where we really do focus on unconscious bias, but in a way that helps us to understand what that means, what that looks like, not make people help people understand it's your life experiences. You're not a horrible person. It's not because of your race, your gender, whatever. You just have it. We need to move forward. We need to be accepting and understand civility and inclusion and what inclusion really means. I, I use the example that I'm a vegetarian. If I get invited to somebody's house for dinner, I'm thankful to be invited as a vegetarian. I don't expect anything, but when they serve me a vegetarian meal, when they have a special meal or they serve vegetarian, that's inclusion. I'm not just invited to dinner. I'm, I, I can enjoy the meal. And that's how we have to be thinking about inclusion. And so if we can get to a more positive view of it, instead of a making every, make, you know, pointing people out, making them feel. And frankly, I think the term, frankly, white supremacy or white privilege is offensive in and of itself because it presumes a concept that being white is a privilege. And I think that's offensive. So it's, but we, that's where I think it, it could be controversial if some people disagree and some people agree with that. So I think every organization has to do what's best for that organization. All right. I like that. And, and now one part that I thought I just had to write down is civility training. I just haven't heard it addressed that way is just going in there and just providing civility training. So um, I know that you mentioned you have an article on civility training. So hopefully we can get that and be able to share that um, with the audience. But I love the civility approach to um, really addressing that 
as a whole instead of just attacking it in one area, but as a complete whole. So thank you for answering that. Yeah. And, and the civility is the civility training I do is civility at work and after hours, because it also talks about the after hours behavior, including on social media and engaging other people on social media and the things that people post on their social media in some cases is, is so outrageous and offensive and vile. And what I tell people is if what you do out there impacts your ability to work in here, you might not be able to work here anymore. And if you work for a private company, you don't have a First Amendment right to not be fired in your private sector company. So don't assume that you're out there posting racist, homophobic, violent statements, and then you're going to get to go back to your workplace. If we're really talking about inclusion and civility, you don't just work your nine to five job. When you're after work, you're still an employee of that organization. There was a guy that posted something super offensive. He worked for a law firm about wearing a mask. He was out of, of Texas, I think. And he posted, you know, let somebody at the Whole Foods on blah, blah, blah Avenue tell me I have to wear my mask. I'll go get my Glock blah, blah, blah and put in my so-and-so ammo or whatever. You know, within 24 hours, the law firm had to announce this guy doesn't work here anymore and we've notified authorities. I'm sure that guy just went on a rant. He was ticked off that he had to wear a mask. Everybody's high pressure, you know, high stress. But don't expect to do that and think it's not going to have consequences because it might. And explaining that on the front end to your employees, you don't have a right to say anything you want. We're telling you right now what the rules are. So there's no question. I tell people it's the choices you make, not the chances you take that determine your destiny. If you make the choice to go post something out there that impacts your ability to work in your organization, we're telling you right now, don't do that because you might not be able to work here and we want you to stay. We don't want you to have to be. We don't. So and and I, I always I use this example. My daughter plays softball. I tell her when she's got two strikes, I say, Sophie. Don't leave it up to the umpire. That's what I tell employees. You might think it's a ball, but if your employer calls it a strike, it's a strike. So don't post anything that could be on the outside corner because it's not worth it. And that is the message we need to get to our employees over and over again, not just in a one-shot deal, but on the regular so that they understand the totality of their behavior and what our values as a company mean. And if we mean what we say, we enforce what we mean. But it's not fair to employees to hold people accountable when we haven't even explained these what the rules are. So it's making sure they understand what the rules are, reinforcing those rules, modeling those as leaders, and then holding people accountable. And if we can get that whole package, we can change the workplace. We don't have to worry about whether Congress passes more laws. We can change the workplace in a meaningful way by just doing those simple things. Thank you to Karen Michael, such a wealth of knowledge. In fact, we have much more content from our conversation, which we will share in 2021. Look for another release of Employment Law Recaps with Karen, touching on reclassification, non-compete, and whistleblower law changes. We will also be sharing some considerations around vaccinations and return to work. To stay in the know, subscribe, and don't forget to check out richmondsherm.org for learning events, including the legal update in March, coming your way in 2021.